Please be seated. Well, once again, good morning. As always, it is a great privilege together, together with you to worship our God. And what a glorious thought that is, that He is our God and that we are His people. And this ultimately is the whole purpose of the Christian faith. God's great purpose in the work of redemption is to be our God and for us to be His people. Revelation 21.3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. So brothers and sisters, this is what we are moving toward. We are moving toward the new heavens and the new earth where we will dwell with God as His people and He will dwell with us as our God. But we also must remember this. Although we are not presently experiencing the fullness of this blessing, nevertheless we do experience the blessing of dwelling with our God now. If you remember from our Bible study in Revelation, how... How are believers described in the book of Revelation? Well, they are described as those who dwell in heaven presently. We are presently citizens of heaven. Also, notice in the book of Ephesians, if you would turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And notice with me in chapter 1, verse 3. There it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If you would then flip over to chapter 2 and notice verse 6. It says here that we have been raised up with Christ and seated with Him in the heavenly places. And so we are in heavenly places presently. We are those who dwell in the presence of God now. He is our God and we are His people And this reality is most especially realized by His people on the Lord's Day in the context of the corporate gathering of the local church as we come together to worship. And so this morning, as I was getting ready to come to church this morning, I was was able to say with David that I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And so it is good to be with you this morning as we worship our God and as He blesses us with every spiritual blessing that is in Christ Jesus. And our God is truly a good God. And He has promised to do good unto His people. He has promised to never forsake His people. And that is a great comfort to the people of God. Well, today is a day that is mixed with much joy and sorrow as we worship. As has already been noted in our worship, but uh, there has been the good news of the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Many people never thought that that would happen in our lifetime. It is a tremendous blessing. And as Proverbs 21.15 says, when justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous. And so we, would, we should rejoice in this great mercy of our God. Further, we just had the great blessing of seeing God join Stuart and Christina in marriage. We should thank God for that great blessing. We've also heard the good news of that Rick and Kim's daughter has given birth to a beautiful baby girl. 
this past week. We should rejoice in this. We also have the great anticipated joy of baptizing Brother Justin and Sister Megan next week. And also the joy of welcoming Justin and Kaylee and Jacob and Megan into covenant membership next week. We ought to rejoice in this great blessing from God. And so we have much to celebrate and rejoice over. But we also have great sorrow today. We have sorrow in knowing that our dear sister Frida has gone on ahead of us to join the church at rest. She is missed and she will be missed. We also realize that our sister Sandra is grieving for her father who passed away this week. And so we hurt for her and we hurt with her. And so truly we see this concept of rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep in the context of the local congregation today. But brothers and sisters, this is the very reality of the church, that we are so joined together by the virtue of our mutual union and interest in Christ by faith that when one of us hurts, we all hurt. And when one of us rejoices, we all rejoice. Why is that so? What causes this kind of unity, this type of bond that we have? Well, this is what is known as the doctrine of the communion of saints. And it is this doctrine that I want to address with you today by God's grace. So if you would at this time, please turn with me to Ephesians 1, and we will read together verses 15 and 16. This is God's Word. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Let us pause to pray. Father, I do thank you for this great blessing of being with your people as we worship you this morning. Lord, I do pray that you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would own it, that you would cause it to go forth in power to accomplish your purpose. I pray that you would comfort those who need comforting, that you would exhort and reprove those who need repentance, and that you would encourage and embolden your saints to grow in their love for you and for one another. Lord Jesus, I do pray that you would that you would help us to so love one another, even as you have loved us, and thereby prove to be your disciples. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let us begin by looking at the context in which we find our passage this morning. Now, before we get into the context, I would point out to you that just because I'm looking at verses 15 and 16 today, it does not mean that we have exhausted verses 3 through 14 of Ephesians chapter 1. It is my understanding that Pastor Thomas will continue expounding upon the treasures that are found in verses 3 through 14 in the weeks to come. But let us look at the context of verses 15 and 16. Of course, we begin with verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. And in verse 1, we have a very important word. And that is the word saints. And we notice the word saints here is a plural word, or you could say it is a corporate word. And that is an important reality to grasp as we move forward. But in this one word, this word saints, we see a glimpse of the major focus of the entire book of Ephesians. 
and consequently one of the major focuses of the entire Christian faith. When you really begin to unpack and understand all that is meant by that simple word, saint, you begin to see something amazing. Now, there is a question we must first address if we are to understand the doctrine of the communion of saints. And that question is, what is a saint? Now, there's a lot of confusion in our day about that term, saint. Some are reluctant to be called a saint. But brothers and sisters, or I could say, my fellow saints, if you are not a saint, you cannot go to heaven. You must be a saint. You see, a saint, quite simply, is one who is a Christian. The root word where we get the word saint from simply means to be set apart. A saint is one who has been set apart by God for God. In fact, as you begin to read through the book of Ephesians, you begin to see that this word or concept of saint is explained in great detail. Notice with me, for example, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And so here we have described for us what a saint is not. And so when Paul in verse 1 of chapter 1 says he is writing to saints, he is saying, I'm writing to you who were once not saints, but now you are. Now, how did they become saints? Or better yet, how did you become a saint? Notice with me in chapter 2, verse number 4. It begins with that great divine conjunctive, but God. And so we see that it is God that intervenes. It is something that God initiates and accomplishes. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, And so we see this intervention of God is motivated by an unconditional love. This love is shown to those who were dead in their trespasses. And the next phrase shows us how we are made saints. It says, made alive together with Christ. And so it is the miraculous, regenerating power of God that makes one a saint. In other words, a saint is one who has been saved by grace. Now let us notice verse 2 of chapter 1. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well once again we see something of the entire theme of the book and the entire theme of Christianity in this one short verse. Now this verse is of course a benediction, that is it is a pronouncement of blessing on the saints that were mentioned in verse 1. Now, what is the content of this blessing or this benediction? Well, it can be summed up in two words, grace and peace. And as you read through the book of Ephesians, you will see over and over again that it is these two realities that form the substance of the book, and it is these two realities that form the substance of Christianity itself. First, the word grace. What is grace? Well, quite simply, grace is the is the unmerited favor and blessing of God. 
In particular, it refers to God's work of salvation through Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. It is by grace we have been saved. And as you work through this book, you see over and over again that Paul points to this grace of God as the very source of our life, both initially at our conversion, but also it is the source of our continued sanctification. And so Paul's approach in this book is to lay out the glories of the gospel, of God's amazing grace, and then urge the saints to grasp the reality of just how blessed they are as a result of this gospel of grace. And brothers and sisters, that is how we preach the gospel to you. We proclaim the facts and the implications of the gospel to you, and then we urge you as saints to glory in and be amazed at that gospel. That is the very source of your spiritual progress. The more that you are amazed at the grace of God in your life, the greater your love for God will be. The one who has been forgiven much loves much. And so our goal as we preach the gospel to you is this, that you would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the height and the depth and the breadth and the length of the love of God in Christ Jesus towards you. That is our goal as we preach to you. That is how you grow. That is how you are conformed into the image of Christ. Second word we have in this verse is the word peace. We see in Ephesians that this glorious grace of God leads to peace. It leads first to peace with God. Prior to becoming a saint, prior to being saved, a sinner is at enmity with God. A sinner is at war with God and has no peace with God. A sinner must be reconciled to God. And this reconciliation that leads to a peace that surpasses understanding is a result of the grace of God. It is this grace that leads to the peace that we talked about at the beginning of our sermon. That is, that we can dwell in the presence of God and He, and that we will be His people and that we, or that He will be our God. And so we experience that blessed peace with God even now, brothers and sisters. We are saints of the Most High God presently. We have peace with God now. But not only does this grace of God result in, uh, result in peace between us and God, it also leads to peace with one another. That's really the whole purpose of the book of Ephesians, particularly uh, chapters 2, verse 11 through chapter 3, verse 13. We see there that the wall of hostility that existed for thousands of years between Jews and Gentiles has been brought down. Notice with me verses 14 through 17 of chapter 2. And notice this theme of peace. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. It is a result of the grace of God making sinners into saints that creates a unity and love between those saints that can only be explained as a miracle of God's grace. And so by grace we have peace with God and we have peace with one another. That, that is the book of Ephesians in a nutshell. And that is the whole Christian message in a nutshell. 
It is all about a loving covenant relationship with God by grace that leads to a loving covenant relationship with the people of God. Now, we move to verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1. And here we have one of the most glorious passages in all of Scripture. What we see here actually is really one long praise of God. Notice how verse 3 begins. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then notice how verse 14 ends. It is to the praise of His glory. And so this wonderful section is bookended with with great praise to God. And so this section is a lengthy praise of God, but what is it that He praises God for? Well, notice verse 3 once again. Because He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so as you go through this passage, we see Paul enumerating those blessings one after the other. We see the blessing of election and predestination and adoption and redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. We see the blessing of the gift of wisdom and knowledge. And we see the blessing of the sealing of the Holy Spirit. But what becomes increasingly evident as you study through this passage is not so much the spiritual blessings, but the source of those blessings. How does our doxology begin? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And those blessings flow through a mediator. And that mediator is, of course, Jesus Christ and Him alone. And so we see in this passage that the source of our blessings is by the virtue of our union with Christ. Notice once again this passage. And I've done this before, but I think it's good for us to to get this in our minds as we read Ephesians 1. Notice verse 3. We see that it is in Christ that we have these blessings. Verse 4. We see that God chose us in Him, that is Christ. Verse 5, that our adoption is to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, He has blessed us in the Beloved, which is Christ. Verse 7, it is in Him, Christ, that we have redemption. Verse 9, we see that the purpose of God is set forth in Christ. Verse 10, the goal of that purpose is to unite all things in Him, that is Christ. Verse 11, it is in Him we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 12, we see that our hope is to be in Christ. In verse 13, it is in Him, that is Christ, that we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And so it is clear, brothers and sisters, from this passage, that the Christian life is all about being in Christ. That is, being in union with Christ by faith. And so that is the great reality that calls Paul to praise God in verses 3 through 14. And so that is the immediate context of our passage this morning. Let us look at our passage once more. Verses 15 through 16. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So why is Paul thankful and desirous to pray in these verses? Well, look at verse 15. We don't have to to guess. He says, For this reason. What reason? Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. He is thankful and he is praying because he has heard that the glorious realities that he praised God for in verses 3 through 14 
are being realized by the Ephesian believers and consequently by all that show evidence that they are saints by their faith in Christ Jesus and their love toward the saints. See that? So he talked about this glorious gospel in verses 3 through 14. Verses 15 and 16 is the evidence that this glorious gospel has been made effectual in the lives of these Ephesian believers. You see that? And so God is, or Paul is thankful for the grace of God that has been shown to these saints. And, and that must have been... Could you imagine how great of an encouragement this was to the Apostle Paul? Brothers and sisters, this is what it is all about for those who are ministers of the gospel and really for all who are saints. Our great desire is to see God glorified in the salvation of sinners and the sanctification of saints. The reason that we labor in the gospel is precisely because we desire to see God glorified by sinners being converted into saints and by those same saints being built up in faith and love. Paul says as much in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. There he says that the aim of our charge, in other words, the, the telos of our ministry, the end, the goal, the, the reason that they are striving in the gospel ministry is what? It is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And so saints of EBC, that is what your elders are laboring for and praying to see. We're laboring to see you built up in love for God and for one another. And this, this shouldn't just be the desire of the elders here. Sunday school teachers, when you prepare and teach your lessons, you are to do so with that goal in mind, that, to see the children built up in love for God and for one another. Husbands, you are to minister to your wives so that they would be built up in love. Wives, you are to encourage your husbands to love God and love others. Parents, you are to teach and disciple your children through the gospel to love God and to love others. Older women in the church, you are to desire to see the younger women being built up in love. Older men in the church, you are to desire to see the younger men built up and growing in love. That is what Paul is getting at later on in Ephesians. Notice chapter 4 of Ephesians and, note, and look at verse 15. There he says, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so we see clearly that the goal here is love. But there is a very interesting and unique metaphor that is used in these verses in Ephesians chapter 4. Now when I say unique, I mean that this metaphor is unique to the Pauline letters. He uses a metaphor here that none, no other writer uses concerning the church. If you notice, Paul repeatedly refers to the church as what? As the body of Christ. And Christ as the head of the church. Now this metaphor is very important for us to grasp if we are to understand the doctrine of the communion of saints. And really if we're going to grasp what the Christian life is all about. Earlier we saw the point 
We saw that Paul made the point very clear in verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1 that union with Christ was at the very heart of what it meant to be a Christian. In order to be a Christian, you must be in union with Christ, right? Now, it is important to, for us to understand and see that this union with Christ is individual in a sense. In other words, I can't be united to Christ for you, and you can't be united to Christ for me. I can't believe in Christ for you, and you can't believe in Christ for me. And so we, we must come to Christ by our own personal faith. But yet, our union with Christ is a corporate reality. There is one body, the scripture says, and one head. The body has many members, yes, but yet it is still one body. What this means, brothers and sisters, is this, that we are united to Christ by faith, or that when we are united to Christ by faith, we are also united with all of God's people into the one body of Christ. To be united to Christ means you must also be united to his people. Now, this one body of Christ is known as the universal church. And so we are members of the universal church as Christians, as saints. And this universal church is also called the invisible church. Now, why is it called the invisible church? Well, the reason the universal church is called the invisible church is because it is not limited by space or time. All of God's people from all, all time, both those in heaven, both those that are still here, those who have gone on before us and those who have yet to be born, all of God's people are part of the church universal. They are all part of the one body of Christ. They are part of what's called the invisible church. But this is important. Listen to this. That is true. There is an invisible universal church. But the Bible makes it clear that although we are members of the invisible church, our union with Christ is to be visible. You will know a tree by its fruits, by its visible fruits. Remember Paul said in our passage today, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. In other words, I know you are saints because of the visible or observable evidences that have been seen and reported on. A person cannot be a saint and not be changed. There will be real visible changes in a person who is a saint. Therefore, those who are in union with Christ and thus are members of the universal or invisible church are made visible. And they are made visible by at least three criteria. Now we see two of these criteria in our verses today, but as you read throughout the New Testament, we see that there are at least three criteria uh, by which saints are made known. The first is the doctrinal criteria. We see in verse 15, they had faith in the Lord Jesus. That is that the saints, they, they believe, they trust, and they hold to the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. 1 John 4, 2 and 3 says this, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And so we have a doctrinal test. Saints make the good confession concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? So there is that doctrinal test. Secondly, in verse 15, we see 
a relational test. They had love toward all the saints. So a person who is a Christian will have love for all the saints. 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life, that is, we have gone from not being saints to being saints, because we love the brothers. Saints love the saints. Therefore, that you can identify a saint because they love the saints. It's a visible identification of those who are saints. A third criteria, which is not mentioned in our passage, but mentioned in other places, is the moral criteria. That is, there is obedience to the commands of Christ. Those who are in union with Christ will be known by their obedience to Christ. 1 John 2.3 says, And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. And so we see that there is a doctrinal test, a relational test, and a moral test. These are the visible criteria by which we can understand who, who those are that are actually united to Christ and therefore are members of the universal or invisible church. So we've seen that there are visible evidences that a person is in union with Christ and therefore a saint. Now each of these tests deserve their own sermons for sure, but today we're going to focus on the second test, and that being the relational test. And that test is the, the test of we see here in verse 15. They had a love for all the saints. Well, in order for Paul to receive a report that the Ephesian saints love the saints, that necessarily implies that there is a visible, defined membership of saints assembled together in what we call local churches. These Ephesian saints love the saints. Well, how, how, how do we know that they were loving the saints and not just general people, right? We know that they were loving the saints because those saints were assembled together in the context of local churches, right? So we see here the necessity of the local church. Membership in the universal or invisible church is made visible or known by faithful membership in the visible or local church. I'll try to break this down a little bit for you. If you are in union with Christ, you therefore are, are a member of His body, meaning you are a member of the universal church. Okay, we've established that. The visible evidence that you are a member of the church universal is that you are a faithful member of the church local. Grasp the reality of the weight of that statement. The visible evidence that you are a member of the universal church is that you are a member of the local church. There is no biblical grounds of assurance that you are a saint unless you be one who loves the saints in the context of the local church. See that? should have a handout that was uh, given to you by Brother Drew. And on that handout, you should have a copy of the Apostles' Creed. Now, if you're not familiar with the Apostles' Creed, this is the oldest and longest standing creed that has been passed down throughout the history of the church. It was first written probably at some point in the 2nd century. Originally, it contained 100 words in Latin. It was meant to be a short statement of the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. Now, our English translations have slightly over 100 words, but the point is it's a very short, concise statement of Christian faith. 
Now, this uh, creed has been used throughout the history of the church. In fact, John Calvin used the Apostles' Creed as the foundation of his institutes of the Christian religion. Uh, Calvin divided his institutes into four major sections or volumes. Those four sections parallel the Apostles' Creed. Those four sections are of God the Father, of God the Son, of God the Holy Spirit, and of the church. So we see that, that Christians throughout all of history have confessed faith in God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and they have confessed that they believe in the church. Notice Article 9 in the Apostles' Creed. It says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. Now, what is meant by the phrase Holy Catholic Church? Well, it's not referring to the Roman Catholic Church. The word Catholic here means universal. We've been talking about the universal church throughout the sermon. And so, what the Christian church has always confessed is that to be united to Christ by faith meant that you were made part of the holy, catholic, or universal church. You see that? That's what it meant to be a Christian. What it meant to be one who was a saint. You were made part of the holy, catholic church. But it is this following phrase that I want us to pay special attention to. The early church confessed that it believed in the communion of saints. Now what do they mean by saying that they believe in the communion of saints? Well, I think what they're getting at here is that, that the holy, catholic, or universal church is made visible by the love or the communion that is shared between the saints in the context of local assemblies or churches. You see that? So they believe in the universal church, right? And that universal church is made visible by the love and the communion that exists between saints in the context of local assemblies. I think the backstory to the hymn that we sang earlier gets at what is meant by the communion of the saints. Remember, we sang the hymn, Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. It's one of my favorite hymns of the Christian faith. Well, this hymn was written by John Fawcett, who was a Baptist minister in England in the 1700s. He pastored a small rural church in Waynesgate, England, and, and it was truly a very small rural church where they... Barely had enough to support him and his family. He was often paid in food because the congregation didn't have enough money to pay him. So they supported him by just giving him what he needed to eat because they had a lack of resources. Well, after several years of ministry at this little country church, Fawcett received a call to pastor a large congregation in London. Now this call would have afforded Fawcett with the opportunity to minister to a far greater number of people it would have given him greater influence among the English Baptists in general, and it, would, and it would have given him a far greater salary, which with which he could have used to provide much more for his wife and his four children. Well, with all of that in mind, Fawcett accepted the call to leave Waynesgate and go to London. Well, on the day that they were to depart, his congregation at Waynesgate helped them to pack and load up their carts, and as they were leaving, the entire congregation burst into tears. And upon seeing this, Fawcett was unable to leave. He called out to the congregation saying, We have changed our minds. We are going to stay. 
and Fawcett remained at Waynesgate for the remaining 54 years of his pastoral ministry. Well, it was upon this occasion that Fawcett penned the words to this now famous hymn. Now, what was it that would cause a man to forego greater opportunities to stay in a little country church? Well, it was the simple fact that his heart was bound in Christian love to those people, and he could not bear for those bonds to be broken. This is what is meant by the communion of saints. You see, the church is not a club. It's not a group of people that simply have a common interest. The church is a community of saints whose hearts have been bound together in love. And this means, among other things, that as we grow as a Christian church here at Emmanuel, we will, we will experience more pain when our fellowship is broken. Whether that fellowship be broken by removal in this world or when one of us is taken to another world in death. It is a great lie to believe that Christians are hurt less than unbelievers when our loved ones die. Now yes, it is true as Christians we grieve not as the world does who has no hope. We grieve with hope, even, even with joy we can grieve. But we grieve at a level that the world knows not of. The world knows nothing of the communion of saints. The bonds that we have in Christ are far deeper and stronger than any bonds in the world. And so we grieve more deeply. And so we grieve deeply this week at the loss of our dear sister Frida. We have hope and confidence that we will see her again in glory. And that hope keeps us from despair. But yet we do, we do grieve. Brothers and sisters, this communion of the saints is the end result of Christ's ministry. We see that in a particular way when we hear him pray in John chapter 17. We know that in that prayer that Jesus asked the following of his Father. He says that they, that is the saints, may all be one communion. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them and you and me, and that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. That is the great goal of Christ's mission. He came to save his people from their sins so that they might be in union with him and enjoy communion with one another for all eternity. Brothers and sisters, what we have together as the people of God is amazing. We will spend eternity together. But beloved, our eternal life has already begun. And so therefore we ought to love one another now. And understand that the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love is the very love of God for us in Christ Jesus. Our hearts are bound together by the very love of God. That's, that's an amazing thought if you, if you begin to really contemplate on that. So with all this in mind, I want to invite you now to turn with me in the back of your Trinity hymnal and look with me on page 685. 
And notice chapter 27. The title of that chapter is, you guessed it, the, Of the Communion of Saints. And as we look at this chapter, I want to draw your attention to five truths from this chapter. Let's begin by reading the two paragraphs. And notice how the themes of this chapter fit into what has been said so far in the sermon. Paragraph 1. All saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by His Spirit and faith, although they are not made thereby one person with Him, have fellowship. That's a synonym for communion. Have communion in His graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. And, so we have union with Christ, and being united to one another in love, they, that is the saints, have communion in each other's gifts and graces, and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, in an orderly way, as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. Paragraph 2. Saints by profession are bound to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God and in performing such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification. As also in relieving each other in outward things according to their several abilities and necessities, which communion, according to the rule of the gospel, though especially to be exercised by them in the relations wherein they stand, whether in families or churches, yet, as God offereth opportunity, is to be extended to all the household of faith, even all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Nevertheless, their communion, one with another, as saints, doth not take away or infringe the title or propriety which each man hath in his goods and possessions. So five truths from these two paragraphs. First, union with Christ means we have fellowship with Christ both in His sufferings and in His glory and thereby benefit from His gifts and graces. In other words, we benefit from our union with Christ. Secondly, likewise, our union with one another is a great blessing from God. Now, brothers and sisters, this is absolutely critical to understand. If you have any understanding of the Christian life, you realize that the primary way that God blesses us on a daily basis is through what? Through His people. That's how God blesses us for the most part. He blesses us from other saints. The love of God is shown to us through the love of the brethren. Now, yes, Christ is the greatest gift, but the second greatest gift is one another. And Christ's whole mission was to bring us together, to be perfectly one. And therefore, do not take your brothers and sisters in this church for granted. They are God's appointed gift to you, to encourage you, to exhort you, to love you, to bear your burdens, to pray for you. We need to view each other as absolutely precious and needful. I don't deserve your love that you have shown to me. But I'm, I'm thankful for you. I need you. I'm happy to be in communion with you. Thirdly, 
We have a duty. We have an obligation to use our gifts and graces to bless one another in the church. This is not optional. This is a command from Christ. John 13, 34 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. How? Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Notice in the paragraph 1, at the, at the end, it says, And are obliged to the performance of such duties. It's a duty that we have to love one another in these ways. Notice the beginning of paragraph 2. It says, saints by profession are bound to do this to one another. We are bound to love one another both spiritually and physically. Fourth truth from this chapter. This duty to bless one another is to be directed first to the inward man. In other words, what that means is that our first duty is as the second paragraph states, we are bound in the performing of spiritual services that tend to our mutual edification. In other words, our greatest desire, our greatest act of love for one another is to see each other conform more and more to the image of Christ. To seek to bless one another spiritually. What this means is we should pray for one another. We should sing to one another. Now, yes, I said sing to one another. Now, what do I mean by sing to one another? What I mean is this, that when we gather for worship and we sing as a congregation, yes, we are singing to God, but we're also singing to one another. When we sing hymns, we sing to one another to encourage one another. Okay? Also, we are to speak the gospel to one another. As brothers and sisters in this church, we ought to be encouraging one another in the gospel on a regular basis. That probably ought to be the, the thing that we talk about the most. Don't you think? That we glory together in the grace of God and the gospel. And so we are to speak the gospel to one another. We are to hold each other accountable in love. We are to comfort one another. We are to challenge one another and stir one another up into love and good works. <clears throat> we are to gather for worship. This is a duty. This is an obligation. This is a duty of love. We are to do all that we can to see our brothers and sisters be conformed and transformed into the image of Christ. We have a duty to do this, brothers and sisters. The communion of the saints means that we are to so love one another that we help each other spiritually. A fifth truth from this chapter. Both of these paragraphs not only mention our duty to bless one another spiritually, but they both mention our duty to bless one another physically. Notice paragraph 1. There it mentions both the inward and the outward man. Notice paragraph 2. There it says, as also in relieving each other in outward things. Now this is, I think, a greatly overlooked aspect of the communion of saints. If you would, turn with me to the book of Acts. And let's look together at chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. Acts 2, beginning in verse 42. 
It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Again, synonym there for communion. They devoted themselves to the teaching and the communion or the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were, to, were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Well, this passage is often misunderstood. Sometimes it is used to state that basically what the early church had was a commune. That they basically put all their money into one pot and everyone had the same amount. And so therefore, if Brother Bill made $80,000 and Brother Bob made 20000 well, they both got 50000 And this passage has often been twisted and manipulated to advocate for socialism. Well, this type of reading of that passage completely misses the point. On the other hand, others dismiss this passage and simply state, well, this passage is just a description of the early church and it is not something that we should try to emulate in our modern day church. Well, I think both of those approaches miss the clear point of this passage. The point of the passage is this. Saints who are covenanted together in a local church ought to love one another so much that they actually want to be together as much as possible. And they treat each other like family because they are family. If a brother or sister in the church is in need, they help one another in all areas. And this is the natural and expected and and normal course for those who have been united together in Christ. Now here's where some might say you go from preaching to meddling. I know that I fall short in this area, brothers and sisters. I need to grow. I need to take this more seriously. As a Christian that has communion with you, I must be willing to relieve your outward needs. I must be willing to bear your burdens. And I think that goes far, far deeper than just money. If my natural family has a need, I drop everything to meet that need if I can. The same should be true in the context of the local church. But herein lies a great issue with our modern day church. We don't share our burdens with one another. We basically turn ourselves into our, to our own individual units that run our own individual empires. We in essence cut ourselves off from one another and we get so busy running our own things that we have very little time for one another. Now, I will pause here. I'm I'm not ignorant, ignorant of this. I know and I realize that we live in 21st century America. I realize that we are a people of our time. And I'm not saying that the secret is that we should all go buy a farm together and live together. That's ridiculous. I'm not saying that. But let's change the sphere for a moment, from the sphere of the church to the sphere of the family, and think through this. In a marriage, if the husband does his own thing and the wife does her own thing, and and I don't burden my wife and she doesn't burden me, do we really have a marriage? 
is not the biblical pattern for marriage that we help each other. That she eases my burdens and I ease her burdens and together we accomplish more than we ever could apart. Isn't that what a family is supposed to look like? If I refuse to live together with my wife in that way, that wouldn't be a very noble thing, would it? Then why is it so common for believers in the context of a local church to live life essentially apart from one another? Part of the problem is we don't share our burdens with each other. So brother or sister, if you are struggling, if you need fellowship, if you are overwhelmed with things to do and don't have enough time to do it all, if you have a financial burden that is crippling you, if you just simply need help with whatever it is, tell that to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'll let you in on a little bit of a secret. Your brothers and sisters in Christ love you. And they would be glad to help you. It would bless their hearts to help you. So why don't we share our burdens with one another? As our confession says, we have a duty. We are bound by love to perform spiritual duties for our mutual edification. And we are bound to relieve each other in outward things according to our several abilities. In closing, in John chapter 17 and John chapter 13, we see that the result of the communion of saints is that it is a great witness to the world that we are in fact the disciples of Christ. Again, John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, by this love, by this communion of the saints, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So one of the greatest evangelistic tools of the church is simply to be a church that is marked by genuine Christian love for one another. If we begin to love one another in a way that is consistent with what our confession says, which is, of course, consistent with what Scripture says, then that will be one of the greatest evidences to the world that we are, in fact, in union with Christ. The communion of saints is foreign to the world. And it may be in many ways foreign to the modern day church. If we love each other the way our church covenant says, we are to love one, um, says we are to love one another, if we are to love each other in that way, the world, your families, other churches, they will take notice of that. And it will provide opportunity, to, opportunity for us to share the glorious gospel of God's amazing grace. Finally, earlier in this sermon, it was mentioned that we presently dwell in the presence of God. That we are presently seated in the heavenly places. That we are presently citizens of heaven. Brothers and sisters, if that is true, and it is, then here's the great reality of that. We are free. We are free to love one another and to do so in ways that do not make sense to the world. We are going to heaven. That is guaranteed. No one or no thing can take that away from us. We are united to Christ. We are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Therefore, we are free to love one another 
as the saints in Acts 2 love one another. We are free to love one another as our confession says we are bound to do. See that? If we can grasp that reality, I do believe it will change the way that we show love for one another. The way that, we, the way that we'd be willing to sacrifice for one another. Saints, we are to love one another in such a way that we bless one another in the inward man and in the outward man. That is the communion of the saints. We are in communion with one another. Let us love one another as Christ has also loved us. Let's pray. Our Father and our most gracious God, we do thank you for this great blessing that you have called us out of darkness and into light. That you have called us from being those who were bound in our sin, those who were bound in hopelessness. And Father, you have joined us together to your Son, and you have joined us together with one another. Father, may we, with all the saints, comprehend just how much you love us in Christ Jesus, and realize that one of the great ways that you show your great love to us is in the communion of the saints. Father, may we worship you. May we praise you. May we glory in the great blessing of the church. And Father, may we seek to love one another as Christ has loved us. May we see together, see each other as precious. May we see each other as blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ who are co-heirs with us. Help us to do this, Lord. Help us to repent where we have fallen short and help us to grow in love for one another. And all of this to your glory, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, at this time, if you would, please stand. And we will sing together hymn number 270, The Church's One Foundation. <laughs>